We're in Psalm 49. Psalm 49. I'm telling you, uh, honestly, as I began to study Psalm 49, I didn't know Psalm 49 that well. I mean, I've read it many times, but it wasn't one that kind of stuck out to me. But as I've studied Psalm 49, uh, getting ready for this, this time of teaching, uh, I'm telling you, this psalm has come alive. And it is one of my favorite psalms, and it is an important psalm. And I'm, I'm just telling you, the Lord's going to speak to us tonight. It is a powerful, powerful psalm. So Psalm 49 is where we will begin. I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to uh, get started. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your goodness and grace and mercy and love. We're so grateful, Lord, for this time to gather together and study your word. And we just ask that you would, uh, Lord, speak to us in a mighty way. Touch our hearts, change our lives. Uh, Lord, get our focus where it needs to be on you and on eternal realities. Uh, Lord, I pray that our Thursday will look different because of what we talked about tonight. And so, God, would you do that in my life and in all of our lives for your glory, for your name's sake? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have greatly enjoyed going through the Psalms. And we're just taking basically one, sometimes two Psalms per week if they fit together, and just taking them and, and studying them and talking about them, and it's been a rich study. So we're almost a third of the way through because there are 150 psalms, and we've almost made it to Psalm 50, so uh, that's gone quick, so praise the Lord um, for that. And uh, the psalms are rich, they're wonderful, and there are a couple quotes there that summarize the psalms that help you to understand why the psalms are so wonderful. Kendall easily writes this statement about the content of the psalms. He says, God the true and glorious King is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. And so, Dr. Easley says, these psalms remind us that whether we're on a mountaintop or in a valley, God's worthy of our worship. Amen? And whether we're on a mountaintop or a valley, God is worthy of our trust. We can trust Him, place our confidence in Him, rest in Him. And so, that's one uh, summary of the psalms. I like this other statement from John Piper. He writes... The psalms are songs. That's what they are. They were written to be sung in corporate worship among the people of Israel. So the psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. That's why people love the psalms. I mean, if, if you talk to someone that really reads the Bible and loves the Lord probably they're going to tell you how much they love the Psalms if you talk to them long enough. They're, they're so wonderful because we connect with the emotions in these pages. And so uh, we love them. And so we've come to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. I'm not going to read the entire thing at first. We're going to walk our way through the entire Psalm. But I'm going to read just the first uh, few verses. And then we're going to jump right in. I've, I've titled this Psalm... Sobering thoughts on a serious subject. Sobering thoughts on a serious subject. It says there in chapter 49, To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were designated to lead the music uh, during worship for Israel. And so these were like the music ministers of Israel, if you will. And it says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. 
Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the, of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Sobering thoughts on a serious subject. In this psalm, uh, there's wisdom that will benefit the whole world. That's, that's how the psalmist sets up this passage. Because look what he says in verse 3. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddles in the music of the lyre. This first part of Psalm 49 really sounds like one of the proverbs. If you're familiar with the proverbs, he's talking about wisdom and knowledge. And the writer here is saying, I've got some things to share with folks that's really going to help them if they'll pay attention. I've got some wisdom I want to dispense, some, some knowledge I want to give. And there's wisdom and knowledge that will benefit the whole world. For example, it'll benefit every nationality. Look in uh, verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. So this is wisdom meant for everyone that lives on the face of the earth. Not just for Americans or Canadians or uh, Ugandans or uh, uh, the Welsh. It's for everybody that lives on the face of the earth. These are things that matter for everybody. Okay? Every nationality. Also, these psalm, this psalm gives wisdom for people in every station in life. Look in verse 2. Both low and high, rich and poor together. So whether you're rich or poor, you need to hear my wisdom. That's what the psalmist is saying. Whether you're low or high, you need to hear my wisdom. This is for everyone. Everyone needs to pay attention to what I have to say. So there's benefit, wisdom here that benefits the whole world. Now when it says there in verse 2 both low and high, literally in the Hebrew it reads, both the sons of man and the sons of man. So how do you get low and high from sons of man and sons of man? Well, the word man is a different word. The first use of the word man is the word Adam, where we get the name Adam from, so the general term for man. The second word for man is the Hebrew word ish. Uh, and so the fact that these two words are used probably signifies men that are in two different places in life. The the word Adam stands for just the common, everyday man. The word Ish, probably scholars believe, stands for a man of significance or wealth. And so that's why it's translated both low and high together. So this psalm gives wisdom to every nationality, every station in life, and the fearful. Look in verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? And so the, the emotion that's being communicated here is this. There are folks around me that are wealthy and in power and they are oppressing me and mistreating me and I'm fearful. And so the psalmist here is saying, I've got some wisdom to give to the fearful. And then this psalmist, for those who compare their lives to others. Look in verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So it's almost like the psalmist is saying, hey, I look at my life, I look at those folks over there. I'm trying to live for the Lord and my life is hard. 
those folks are evil, ungodly, but they're filthy rich and they're living the good life. So what's up with that? Have you ever had that same kind of thought in your mind? You're trying to serve the Lord and times are hard. Someone else over there doesn't care about the Lord and their life looks wonderful. Look, they look like they're living a life of ease. And the psalmist here is comparing his life, his lot, to those that are around him that seem like they are rich and have it all, comparing his life to others. So if you find yourself comparing your life to others, your lot in life to other people's lot in life, this psalm is for you. This psalm will help you to put things in proper perspective. So this psalm has wisdom that will benefit the whole world. So here's the wisdom. All right, we're going to finish the psalm now. Here's some things that everyone needs to realize, regardless of ethnicity or wealth or lack of wealth or whatever. Everyone needs to realize the things that we are about to say from God's Word. First of all, everyone needs to realize death is the great equalizer. Death is the great equalizer. Look what it says there in verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. He should live on forever and never see the pit. Death is the great equalizer. Whether you're rich or poor, uh, a person of prestige or a person of renown or a person that is oppressed by others and no one cares about. Everyone in every station in life, has to face the reality of death, right? Everybody. Death is the great equalizer. Death is inevitable for everyone. That's what he's saying here. Everyone must face death. People don't like that, but everyone must face death. I remember one time I was invited to um, speak at a funeral in Memphis, and uh, the person that invited me was a church member, but most of her family and friends were, that were going to be at the funeral were, were unchurched and really not living uh, for the Lord, living uh, ungodly lives, didn't care about the things of God. And so she asked me to share. And as always, every time I preach a funeral, every time I preach a wedding, I always share the gospel because there's no hope apart from the gospel, right? I mean, if I, if I, don't, if I don't get up at a wedding or a funeral and share the gospel, then why, why, why am I a preacher of, of, the, of the gospel, right? I mean, I need to do something else, right? And so I was at this, uh, this funeral, and I remember I said, I'll never forget, I said, you know, funerals often make us uncomfortable because they bring us face-to-face with our own mortality. That's a statement. And I started talking about Jesus and hope, and I'll never forget, this hadn't happened very often, when people began to get up and walk out of the room just began to file out of the back of the room as I began to talk about Jesus Christ. They did not like the reality of death staring them in the face, thinking about their own mortality. Death is inevitable for everyone. Uh, the, the statistics hold true. One out of one die. Right? Now, Jesus may come back, and we, we miss that, but if he doesn't, guess what? One out of one die. For he doesn't come, he's coming back. He doesn't come back in our lifetime. One out of one die. And there's no way to escape or cheat death. That, that's what he's saying there in verses 7 and 8. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. In other words, he's saying one man of wealth can't send a, a, a poor man to die for him. There, there's no proxy when it comes to death. He can't, he can't pay God off and say, I don't want to die. Your wealth means nothing when it comes to mortality, right? And, and so... There's no way to escape or cheat death. Listen to this quote from William Van Gimmeren. He writes, 
Because death is the common experience of mankind, rich and poor alike. The rich cannot boast of any advantages over the poor. He cannot use his money to redeem himself from death or to send a substitute for himself. That's what the psalmist just said. He may live on a grandiose scale so as to give the impression that he will live forever, but he too must ultimately face death for what it is, a separation from the land of the living, from the comforts of life and from social and economic distinctions. And so he's saying, hey, you may be filthy rich and you may look like you got it all, but guess what? You're going to die. And in that moment of mortality, your money's not going to do you a bit of good. You've heard the old statement, you can't take it with you, right? Never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? It's just not how it works. There's no way to escape or cheat death. There was an atheist philosopher in the 18th century named Voltaire. And he was a very wealthy man. And he regularly attacked Christianity. And he predicted its demise. He said that Christianity was going to, to fade out because of the Enlightenment. And people were going to get wise and realize that Christianity is a bunch of fables and myths. And and they were going to walk away from the faith, and Christianity was going to die in his lifetime. Well, guess what? I'm having, I'm having to explain to you who Voltaire is, but we're sitting in a Christian church. Can I get an amen? All right. Uh, he was this, Christian, uh, this uh, atheist philosopher, attacked Christianity. When he came to die, it's reported that he cried to his doctor in desperation, saying this, I will give you half of all I possess if you will give me six months more of life. But guess what? No deal. Because there was nothing the doctor could do. It didn't matter how much money he offered him. It was his time to die, right? And his money wasn't doing him a bit of good at the point of death. So, death is the great equalizer, all right? I mean, you see people in this world that are living in all different uh, ways and in different situations and different status levels, but everyone must face death. So death is the great equalizer. Secondly, death is final. Death is final. This is real cheery starting off, isn't it, tonight? Death is final. Look in verse 11. Verse 11. Their graves are their homes, how long? Forever. Their graves are homes forever. Death is, death is final. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. So here's what he's saying. You have these rich folks, and they own land and have their name on title deeds. But guess what? They're dead and gone. It doesn't matter a bit. They're, and they're dead forever. They can't come back and live on that land. They are gone. They are in their grave. Death is final. Now, there are many ideas in our world that try to minimize the finality of death. Many different worldviews and ideas, philosophies out there, even religions, that try to minimize the, the, the finality of death. Uh, for example, how many of you have heard of reincarnation? How many of you have heard that? Reincarnation. The idea that, well, you get another chance, and, and then another chance, another chance. Different Eastern religions teach different forms of reincarnation, and based upon how good you did in, the li- in your life, uh, if you did really good, then you come back as something greater, higher up on the scale. If you did really bad, then you might come back as a bug, right? I mean, that's, and, and that, that's funny to us, but that's really what's taught. It's, it's reincarnation. And, and, and what is reincarnation trying to promote? Hey, death is not final. You get another chance. But this word says that death is forever. There's a finality when it comes to death. Um, there's an idea called PME, post-mortem evangelism, that says, hey, when you die, uh, if you didn't get it right on this earth, 
Then you'll hear the truth and get another chance to get it right, okay, when you're standing before God. That's called post-mortem evangelism, evangelism that happens after death. And again, trying to minimize, okay, death is, a, you know, death is a real deal, but, but there's not a finality to it. I can, I can get things right on the other side of death. And that's a, an idea that's generated even in um, those, that call them, among the, those that call themselves Christians, trying to minimize how serious death is. There's another idea out there in Roman Catholicism called purgatory. That, okay, you die, and based upon what you did in your life, you're some level, and, and if you have the right people praying for you, uh, even giving money, uh, uh, or lighting candles, or then you can, your rank can get better in purgatory, and you can even make it on into heaven if things turn out just right. Um, that, that's what started, by the way, the Protestant Reformation. Did you know that? Uh, the reason that Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses on the door in 1517 in Wittenberg, um, Germany is because this um, this uh, gentleman came from Rome named Tetzel, and Tetzel was trying to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica, this this beautiful edifice, and it's, it's there now in the Vatican. Um, but they're trying to raise money from the people all around uh, to build this uh, this building, this this cathedral. And so Tetzel got permission from the Pope to ride into town and say to these different villagers, "Hey, listen, if you'll give a certain amount." Um, to this building fund, then your loved one will get out of purgatory. And so think about you're, a, you're a, a villager. You don't have access to the word of God in your language. And this, this religious representative rides into town and tells you that if you give a certain amount of money, that your dead mother gets out of purgatory and goes directly into heaven. I mean, you would, that would interest you, right, if you didn't know any better. So people began to give like crazy. Matter of fact, Tetzel even had a phrase he would use. He said, a, a, a coin in the coffer, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's what he said. And Martin Luther heard this and said, this isn't what not what the Bible says. There's no mention of that in God's word. A person is justified by faith, not by their, their relative giving money or or by someone praying them out of purgatory, it, it, it's, it's justified by faith. Where they spend eternity is based upon what they, do, what they do with Jesus here in this life, right? You're justified by faith. That's when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis and the whole Protestant Reformation happened. It came down to this idea that, hey, after death, if you, if you didn't get it completely right, then you'll have some other chances um, to get into heaven. And, and those, those ideas minimize the finality of death. So what does the Bible say? You've got reincarnation out there. You've got you know, reincarnation and karma. You've got purgatory. You've got postmortem evangelism. What does the Bible say? Well, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, the Bible is very, very clear. Very, very clear. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it is appointed for man to die once. Then comes the judgment. It's appointed for man to die once. Then comes the judgment. There's no second chances. There's no postmortem evangelism. There's no purgatory to be prayed out of you you die and then you face the judge and he assigns you your eternal destiny and where you spend eternity is based upon what you do with jesus christ here in this life that was very very clear and so we need to think seriously about the finality of death because once you die there's no redo there's no second chance what you do with jesus in this life matters right the finality of death. Death is final. Here's a third thought about 
death that we need to understand. Wisdom that will benefit the whole world. Our status in this life won't matter in the next. We already kind of talked about this a little bit, but our status in this life won't matter in the next. Look what it says in verse 16. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, here it is, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. That's strong, right? Hey, a rich man will not take his money with him. You can't take it with you. And so whatever achievements or accomplishments uh, you have in this life, whatever you've acquired in this life, it is not going to determine anything about the next life. Your relationship with Jesus is going to determine your status in the next life. Not your wealth, not your station in life. Remember when Jesus said that uh, the last will be first, the first will be last? We're going to, listen, you and I are going to be shocked at who's at the front of the line. Probably folks we've never even heard of. All right? People that have faithfully served Jesus and have great rewards waiting for them because they served him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind. Not based upon their wealth or their achievements or their prominence, but based upon their relationship with Christ and their faithful service to Christ. Our status in this life won't matter in the next. And this is so clearly demonstrated in Luke 16. Turn to Luke 16 with me. I want to show you this parable. And I don't think it's a parable. I said that wrong. This story that Jesus shares. Luke chapter 16. People call it a parable. I don't think it is. I think it's a true story. It's the parable, or the, sorry, the story, not a parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The, um, the reason I believe it's a story and not a parable is because Jesus uses a proper name. And there are no parables that Jesus ever shares that have a proper name. So I don't think it's a parable. I think it's a true story. So look what it says in Luke 16, verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Isn't it interesting that this rich man still felt like he could boss the poor man around? But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Powerful, powerful verse. But here's what Jesus is saying as an example of Psalm 49's teaching. <laughs> you have a rich man and a poor man, and their eternal station has nothing to do with their lot in this life, in this world. The rich man who thought he had it all, he's in hell. 
because he rejected Christ. The poor man who was begging for scraps from the rich man's table, he's in heaven in Abraham's bosom in paradise with the Lord. Why? Our status in this life has no bearing on the next life. Which, by the way, think about this. Why do we spend so much time on our status in this life? Why do we spend so much focus and energy on this life and never think about what the next life is going to look like? It's an interesting statement. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. And, and, and this is where Psalm 49 begins to bring it to some powerful conclusions. People that give no thought to death are foolish. People that give no thought to death are foolish. Look what it says in verse 13. Verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts, say law. Then in verse 14. Like sheep, they were appointed for Sheol. Sheol was the word for the place of death. It was a Hebrew way of saying death. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So he's speaking there of the fate of those who have not considered mortality, who have rejected the Lord and His grace, and they find themselves shepherded by death, the place of Sheol. Look what it says in this phrase is repeated, verse 12 and verse 20. Man in his pomp, the man who's prideful and thinks he doesn't have to worry about death, man in his pomp shall not remain, he is like the beast that perish. Look in verse 20. Man in his pomp. Let me tell you one thing the Bible condemns. Pomp. God does not like pride. It's not like arrogance. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding without understanding, is like the beast that perish. William Van Gimmeren says, If man has no understanding of himself as man, of his mortality, and of his God, he lives and dies like the beast that perish. It's, it's a foolish person that never considers the fact that, they may, that they're going to die one day. And never thinks about being ready for that day of death and what will happen after the day of death. And you think about it, I mean, we all know somewhere, just by looking around, that we're all going to die. But so many people... Fill up their lives with just stuff so they don't have to think about it, right? And they put away thoughts of death. And the Bible calls that kind of person foolish. It's foolish not to consider it. You know what the book of Ecclesiastes says? Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says, it's, listen to this, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. That's what it says. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. That's what the Bible says. Why in the world would the Bible say it's better to go to a funeral than a party? Because funerals remind you that we're not going to live forever. Funerals bring you face to face with your own mortality. Funerals, if you'll let them, cause you to think about eternity. And so, people that give no thought to death are foolish. This is really strongly illustrated in a parable. Luke chapter 12. Look in Luke chapter 12. Jesus drives this point home. This is a really powerful story or parable. You need to highlight it in your Bible. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus is teaching, and someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A family fighting about inheritance. Does that happen in our day and time, anybody? Just from a, a pastoral perspective, just being around families, 
death and dying. I've seen families, I've seen brothers, sisters, siblings, families ripped apart over stuff. I really have. People that were close not talk to each other ever. And if, if we went around this room, you probably could share with me some stories like that. And, and Jesus teaches, someone says, hey, uh, will you fix this family squabble for me? And look what Jesus says to refocus this person. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. <laughs> wow. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you think life is all about stuff, you're missing the point of life, right? That's what he's saying. Then he says, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got more than enough. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, what's the word? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, listen, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's strong, isn't it? And Jesus is illustrating the point we're seeing in Psalm 49. People that give no thought to death are foolish. People that think that, that what they acquire or achieve in this life is what's most important, they're foolish. They're missing the point of it all. And Psalm 49 wants us to get that point. So, pretty depressing sermon so far, right? Here's what we've established. Death is the great equalizer. Death is final. Our status in this life won't matter in the next. And people that give no thought to death are foolish. Okay, not a real cheery message. But we get to point number five. And here it is. You ready? There is hope beyond death and dying. There is hope beyond death and dying. And, and look what the psalmist says in Psalm 49, verse 15. Just one verse of hope here. But it is powerful. Verse 15. Look how it starts. I love this. But God... So, death is the equalizer. Death is coming for everyone. Death is final. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. There is hope beyond death and dying. I love how this verse begins, but God. There are some significant verses in the Bible that begin with the phrase, but God, to contrast hopelessness with God's grace. For example, over in Genesis chapter Fifty when uh, Jacob dies and uh, Joseph's brothers are scared that Joseph, who they sold into slavery and is now the second most powerful man in Egypt, is going to seek retribution. They come to him and they're saying, listen, please don't kill us now that our dad is dead. They thought now that uh, Jacob was dead, Joseph was going to get his revenge. And, and Joseph said this, he says, all of these acts, your, your brutality selling me into slavery, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So hopelessness, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Over in Romans chapter 5, verse 7, the Bible says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But 
God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad that even though we don't deserve his death on the cross, he died for us anyway, showing his amazing love. So we're all sinners. We don't deserve him to die for us, but God loves us enough to give his son to die in our place. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were all hopeless apart from Christ, but God didn't leave us in our hopelessness. He loved us. He gave us his grace, his mercy, his love. He saved us, right? But God. So I love that phrase we see many times in God's word. And and back in Psalm 49, that's exactly what's happening. There's hopelessness, death. It's final. It's coming for all. But God gives us hope beyond death and dying. How does he do that? Well, first of all, Jesus paid the price to set us free from the power of sin. Notice he says there in verse 15, but God will ransom my soul. Now, this verse is interesting when you juxtapose it with verse 7. Look what he says in verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another. In other words, you can't send a, a, another person to die for you. You ever heard someone say in a, maybe a, a sad family situation, someone has a loved one that's dying, and, and, and the person that's not dying says, if I could take this from you, I would. You ever heard that phrase? Uh, said out of love and compassion. If I could take this from you, if I could die in your place, I, I would. That's not an option, is it? One man can't die for another man. One woman can't die for another woman uh, because that's just not how it works. We all have to deal with mortality. But what if God sent not just a man to die for us, what if he sent the God-man to die for us? Jesus Christ. God, it says, will ransom my soul from the power of shale. So that's why it's so important that that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Christ left the splendor of heaven. He came and took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So when Jesus Christ was born, He was fully God, fully man. Right? The God-man. And as fully man, Jesus could go to the cross and die in our place, taking the punishment that you and I deserve. As fully God, He could pay the infinite debt that you and I owe. We've sinned against an infinitely holy God. We deserve infinite punishment. Jesus being infinite himself as God died to take that punishment for us. He died in our place. He died as our ransom. Uh, the, the word ransom uh, is similar to the word redemption. It means to be set free, from the, uh, set free by the payment of a price. And so we've been set free from sin because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how did God, chapter 49, verse 15 of Psalms, how did God ransom my soul? He gave Jesus his Son to die in my place. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for my life. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus died and shed his blood so we could be ransomed. He paid the price so you and I could be set free. Amen? It's really good news. God ransomed our soul through Jesus 
Christ. And so there's hope beyond death and dying. Because the penalty we deserve to pay in hell, on the other side of death, has been paid by Jesus. When we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, that payment is applied to our life. Our sins are washed away. When we go on, on into eternity on the other side of death, instead of paying for our sins, we experience redemption, salvation, because our sins have already been paid for. Amen? And so, Jesus paid the price to set us free from the power of sin. Secondly, why is there hope beyond death and dying? Because Jesus rose from the dead, forever breaking the power of death. Back in Psalm 49, it says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He'll ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of death. Because God does something in our life, death no longer has power over us. And the reason death no longer has power over us is because Jesus defeated death. Look over in 1 Corinthians 15 with me very quickly. 1 Corinthians 15. Look in verse 20. I was studying uh, this my uh, dining room table this week, and Claire was in the kitchen, and, and uh, I told her, I said, this verse, Psalm 49, 15, would be a great Easter sermon. But I'm preaching it now, so I'll do something else for Easter. But it'll be related. So I think you probably ought to mention the resurrection on Easter Sunday. What do you think? think you ought to? Yeah, okay, good. All right, so look at this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In other words, because Jesus Christ defeated death, he will one day come back and raise our bodies from the grave, giving us brand new glorified bodies. He's the first fruits of those who will be resurrected, talking about you and I. He, he paved the way, if you will, by being resurrected from the dead. So Jesus defeated death, and because Jesus defeated death... Psalm 49, 15 says, hey, God can ransom our soul from the power of the place of death. The power of Sheol. Jesus rose from the dead, forever breaking its power. Now, back in Psalm 49, verse 15. How do we have hope beyond death and dying? Jesus paid the price to set us free from the power of sin. Jesus rose from the dead, forever breaking the power of death. And third... The hope of resurrection is the promise of eternal fellowship with God. Look what he says in verse 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So not only does God ransom your soul so you don't have to go to hell, not only does he raise you up from the place of the dead, Sheol, the grave, he brings you to himself. He brings you into fellowship with himself, which is what heaven's all about. Heaven is, you get to go be with the Lord in, in fellowship with him. Now, here's what's interesting. That phrase that says, he will receive me, is a translation of the same, of a verb that is used of Enoch in Genesis 5.24. Remember Enoch? There are two people in the Bible that were told, go to heaven without dying. One is Enoch, I just told you that. Who's the second one? I said it on Sunday. Elijah. Elijah and Enoch, they got to go to heaven without dying first, which is pretty cool. All right? Uh, Elijah got to go with a chariot, a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. Enoch was just walking with God, and it says he just was taken, and he was just there with God. He just walked right into the presence of God. Pretty cool stuff. Um, but Enoch walked with God, he had fellowship with God, and then God brought that fellowship 
to a to a eternal reality for Enoch. He got to walk with God in eternity. He took him. And that same verb is being used here when it says, He will receive me. The way Enoch experienced ongoing fellowship with God in eternity, we will experience ongoing fellowship with God in eternity. That's what makes heaven heaven. Eternal fellowship with God. Now listen to me carefully. Streets of gold, pearly gates, river of life, New Jerusalem, all of that, a mansion, all of that without Jesus would not be heaven. What makes heaven heaven is you get fellowship with Jesus forever. That's what makes heaven heaven. And so uh, we see here that he's going to, to ransom our soul from the power of shale, and then he receives us into fellowship with himself. I like the way Murdoch Campbell says it. He kind of summarizes this entire psalm when he says, We leave the world either with God or with nothing. That's everyone's lot. Everyone has that option. You leave the world with God or with nothing. That would be true of everyone in this room, everyone in this world. You either leave this world through the portal of death with the Lord, which means you have everything, or you leave this world with nothing. You leave all of your accomplishments, all your achievements behind, and you spend eternity separated from God because you did not embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so, death is a great equalizer. Everyone needs to realize this. Everyone in the world, every nationality, every station in life, rich and poor, fearful, everyone needs to realize death is a great equalizer. Death is final. Our status in this life won't matter in the next. People that give no thought to death are foolish, but there is hope beyond death and dying, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ.